Well, good morning, everybody. Today, we are going to start the book of Ruth. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful time of fellowship that we can have with you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will reveal who you are to us. Lord, we're going to learn about you being our kinsman and redeemer, our Goel. Lord, our redeemer, the one who shows grace. Oh, Lord, you're so good. And we just pray, Father, that you will help us to understand how much you love us and how awesome it is to be recipients of your grace. We thank you for everything that you've already done for us, for the things that you're doing for us, and the things that you promised to do for us. None of them are because of things that we have done. They are all pure gifts, all grace. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a bit of background to the book of Ruth. I'm going to start with a story. The story is told that when Benjamin Franklin was ambassador to France, he spoke to a group of intellectuals who continually scoffed at his belief in the Bible. Unconvinced that these men were familiar with the book they mocked, Franklin said, By the way, gentlemen, I have come across a most intriguing love story that I would like to read for you tonight. I think you'll find it interesting. He then proceeded to read a handwritten copy of the book of Ruth. After he finished the four short chapters, his audience was ecstatic. That is the greatest love story we have ever heard, they exclaimed. You must publish it at once. Franklin answered, It has already been published. It's in the Bible. And the scoffers were silenced. The book of Ruth is divided into four chapters, each taking place in a different setting. It's like a four-act drama or play. Chapter 1 takes place in the country of Moab. Chapter 2 in the fields of Boaz in Bethlehem. Chapter 3 on the threshing floor of Boaz in Bethlehem. And chapter 4 at the city gate of Bethlehem. So today, just to give you an idea of where we're going, we're going to just only cover the first five verses. But before we do that, we're just going to have a bit of an introduction to the book of Ruth and what things were like at that time. First off, the main character is Ruth. Now, her name means friendship. And she is the great-grandmother of King David. She is a representative or picture or type of us, the bride of Christ. And her repentance is epitomized in these famous verses. It's Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. It says, But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And there's a picture, a beautiful picture, of repentance. How do we become a part of the church? It's by repentance. It's by turning our backs on the world and following Jesus. 
Now, why would Ruth want to do that? Well, the hero of this story is Boaz. In him is strength. That's what his name means. And he is a picture or type of our hero, our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, Jesus Christ. Boaz acted in grace to redeem Ruth. Christ acted in grace by giving himself as the Redeemer to provide redemption for all mankind. And we're going to dig into this and explore the depths of this concept more and more over the coming weeks. Now the three themes of the book of Ruth are redemption, revival and restoration. And this powerful little love story shows us clearly how the Lord can breathe life into a situation that appears lifeless, hopeless. Our Lord is a restorer. He is a rebuilder. He is a reviver. And the book of Ruth ministers the message of hope to any who feel wiped out, hurting, or hopeless. So, some of the details. Firstly, who wrote the book of Ruth? Well, we don't know. It could have been Samuel, Samuel the prophet. When did this story happen? When did these events happen? Well, they happened during the time of the Judges, as recorded in the book of Judges. It was a 400-year period characterized by the repeated phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it says that four times in the book of Judges. And I just want to spend a bit of time explaining this what this looks like is australia today we have walked away from our christian roots our christian culture and now we vote to decide what is right and wrong there is no absolute standard of right or wrong anymore in australia or in the whole western world europe and america have gone down the same track instead Everybody just does what they think is right. Or, as it's written in the book of Judges, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. Like back then, today we have all different religions which worship false gods, as well as immoral practices like butchering and murdering babies, general violence and rampant sexual immorality, including homosexuality. Also, like today, They were becoming more and more godless and vile. During those times, the children of Israel were not much different from the nations that God had judged. Therefore, they too came under God's judgment. So, I'm just going to start with a quick history of the Israelites, or the Jewish or Hebrew people, just so we understand who they are and where they come from and at what stage of their history they're at at this time. So, First, God called Abraham. Then there was his son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob and his twelve sons and their families all go down to Egypt, where Joseph is. Then about 300 years later, Moses brought the people out of Egypt and led them for 40 years in the wilderness. Then Joshua brought them into the promised land where they defeated most of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, the land promised to Abraham, or as we know it today, Israel. But when Joshua and the other elders from that era all died, the people started worshipping the false gods of those nations they had defeated. 
These 400 years became the dark ages of Israel's history. Shameful, vile, brutal, depressing. So just like the um, dark ages one and a half thousand years ago, you know, we're in the dark ages. That's what it was like back then for the nation of Israel. The victories and obedience of Joshua were followed by long periods of spiritual and moral decline with brief periods of revival. You may be familiar with some of the 12 judges or rescuers that God sent over those dark years. Uh, There was Othniel, Ehud, Shemgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jah, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and then Samson. Now the last judge is Samuel, because after Samuel, the rule by kings started with King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon, etc. Now, I think it's worth reading a section from the book of Judges, so you can get an understanding of the setting that this story takes place in. And so I'm just going to read uh, 10 verses from Judges. It's Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. It says, After that, generation died. That is, Joshua's generation died. Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to the enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshipping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, that is, Moses and Abraham and Joshua, Isaac and Jacob, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from the enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people, who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshipping them and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Wow, it's a, not a good um, description of their society, of their culture at that time. And what we're going to see in the book of Ruth is godly people living in, in difficult times, in godless times, in evil times. It's a picture for us. But... Consider these people, it's no wonder that there was a famine. This was one of the ways that God judged the nation for their continued idolatry and unfaithfulness to him. 
So when did the story of Ruth take place? Well, Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, King David, who began his rule at Hebron in 1010 BC. This means that the events in the book of Ruth occurred sometime in the last half of the 12th century BC, a hundred or so years before King David. This means that Ruth may have lived at the time of Gideon. This is interesting because while Gideon was around and he was young, the Midianites, the Amalekites and other nations around Israel, they would come in and destroy the crops. They would take everything that could be eaten. And the Israelites were basically starving to death. It was pretty gruesome. It was a famine not caused by a lack of rain, but caused by people taking the crops and destroying the land. But then the people cried out to God, and Gideon, in that famous story with his 300 men, with their swords and their lanterns, God used them to defeat this vast army. And after that time, there was a time of peace. So a lot of people think that this is a time where the book of Ruth fits. There was a famine, and they leave to get away from these really tough times, these people who keep invading and taking their food, and they go to somewhere there's more food. But then God delivers his people, and they can come back. So we'll get into that bit later. Now, before we actually start, I've got a couple of interesting facts for you, a bit of trivia. Ruth and Esther are the only two books in the Bible named after women. Esther is one. Esther was a Hebrew woman who married a Gentile or non-Jewish king and helped preserve the nation of Israel from destruction. Ruth, on the other hand, was a Gentile woman who married a Hebrew man. God used Ruth to perpetuate the line of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Ruth is a part of the ancestry of our Saviour, Jesus. Secondly, the book of Ruth is read annually by Jews on the Feast of Pentecost. What is the Feast of Pentecost? Well, this feast commemorates or remembers the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and it occurs at the beginning of the barley harvest when they have this offering called the offering of first fruits of the harvest. Ruth's betrothal or engagement to Boaz in chapter 3 took place during this festive harvest season when the barley was being harvested. So to me, this is interesting. The Feast of Pentecost historically celebrated the giving of the law, or the first covenant. Now the law is where God said that he would only do his part if the nation did their part. The nation promised to keep the law, a promise they could never keep. And at that time, 3,000 people died. But, the Feast of Pentecost was also prophetic of the Second Covenant, the Covenant of Grace. And this led to the birth of the Church. And on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, 3,000 people were saved, in contrast to the 3,000 people who died earlier on. So the Second Covenant is all about what God freely gives us, even though we don't deserve it. And that is what the book of Ruth is all about. And we call this Grace receiving something we don't deserve and the book of Ruth is going to help us to understand how Jesus has shown us grace now 
One last thing before we read the chapter. I've got eight comparisons or contrasts between the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. First, the book of Judges highlights immorality. The book of Ruth shows fidelity, righteousness and purity. Second, the book of Judges shows idolatry. The book of Ruth shows the worship of the only true God. Third, the book of Judges shows decline and disloyalty. The book of Ruth shows devotion. Fourth, the book of Judges shows lust, but the book of Ruth shows love. Fifth, the book of Judges shows war, but the book of Ruth shows peace. Sixth, the book of Judges shows cruelty, but the book of Ruth shows kindness. Seventh, the book of Judges shows disobedience leading to judgment. The book of Ruth shows obedience leading to blessing. Eighth, the book of Judges shows spiritual darkness. The book of Ruth, spiritual light. Now, this gives us a picture of what we, the church, should be as we live in a dark world. And I've got a scripture that helps us to understand this picture here. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. It says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's really important that we understand that we should not let the godless culture around us influence us. Instead, we should be influencing it. God calls us to live pure lives in the middle of an impure world. So, let's read Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, 
Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? No. Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened, when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So, just going to go back to those first six verses. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Marlon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So, before we dig in and go verse by verse and word by word, I want to just get the big picture and apply these first six verses to my own lives. So, a famine caused a family in Bethlehem to decide to move to a foreign land. A land of false religion, immorality and violence. Can you think of a story in the Bible where this happened? Abraham, yeah, going to Egypt, and then there was also um, Lot choosing to go near Sodom. So what's amazing is that this situation becomes an opportunity for God to demonstrate his grace, and this is the major or overall theme of the book of Ruth, God's grace toward us. Now let's think about Abraham and Sarah. They moved to Egypt because of a famine in the land of Canaan, and there were disastrous consequences. 
Abraham later leaves Egypt with his tail between his legs after being publicly humiliated by Pharaoh, a pagan king, for his lies and for his disobedience. But just like we will find out here, God showed grace and gave Abraham another chance. God is so good. He is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and hundredth chances. But just remember that when we do seek our own desires, comfort and well-being over our relationship with God, when our own desires, comfort and well-being become more important than our relationship with God, there will often be serious practical consequences. The Bible doesn't say for nothing that sin leads to death. So I think it's really important that we understand this right from the start. Being in the will of God will not always be the easiest way. It's not always going to be comfortable or easy to be a Christian. And according to the scriptures, we should never expect that living a godly life in an ungodly world will always go well for us. And I just want to read to you John fifteen eighteen to 21. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They would do all this because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So sometimes being godly will cost us our job or opportunities. That's okay. Just remain faithful. Some people are in difficult marriage, especially those Christians who are married to unbelievers. The very strong temptation is to, my word is, skadoodle out of there (laughs) and get a divorce. What the Bible says is, don't. You will be okay. The testimony of many Christians who are stuck in difficult marriages or other relationships like, you know, mother-daughter, etc., is that the suffering and struggle are worth it. They wouldn't have it any other way because they experience God's presence along the way and the blessing at the end. Just like Daniel and the three friends, they experience the presence of God in their trials, so we can experience the presence of God in our trials. We just need to stay put where God puts us and trust Him. So the trial will last as long as it takes to pass. (laughs) That's how long it will last. But it will pass. God will visit your situation when the time is right and bring blessing, as it happened in the book of Ruth. But in the meantime, we need to hang in there and hold on to the promises of God. I'm going to mention three, three reasons why we should hold on and be faithful to what God calls us to do. There's more than this, but this is just three for us now. The first one is that everything that happens to us is working for our good. It's transforming us into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, 29. The second one is our faith is becoming stronger. And 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And a final reason for hanging in there and persevering through trials and not taking the easy road of escape or quitting is God's promise, He will never leave us or forsake us. And I'd like to read 
Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, just want to encourage those who are struggling in their present circumstances to never give up, to not quit. Like Boaz, if we are faithful to remain where God puts us, we will experience the presence of God in a very real way. Our faith will grow and we will experience God's faithfulness to us and the blessing that comes from persevering. However, if we quit and take the easy way out like Elimelech did, and we'll find out about what he does soon, we will miss out on the opportunity to grow in our faith miss out on abiding in Christ and will put ourselves and those around us in harm's way and suffer much more than is necessary. So that's basically the big picture of what's happening here. So let's just look quickly at the first five verses. So verses one and two, a terrible decision is what I've called this. The first two verses, a terrible decision. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So, again, we talked about when this happened. It's the times of the judges and probably about the time of Gideon. And the famine in the land was probably God judging his sinning people. Another example of God judging through famine is Elijah. You remember that? And God sent Elijah and he told King Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. And three and a half years went by until it rained again. Now, a bit of background, what was happening in the land of Israel during the period of the judges, they used to worship Baal, as we read in our introduction. Baal was believed to be the owner of the land and to control its fertility. Baal's female counterpart was Ashtaroth. That's why when you read the Old Testament, those gods are usually mentioned in the same context. Sexual intercourse between these two gods was believed to regulate fertility of the earth and its creatures. You can understand why the worship of these demonic gods involves sexual practices and how it mirrors today's permissiveness and looseness. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And it's against this dark backdrop that we will see the beautiful purity, the faithfulness, and true love of Ruth and Boaz. So Bethlehem, that's about five miles south of Jerusalem. And later in the story, Obed, Ruth's son. And then later on, David. And then later on, someone really important. Jesus also is born in Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? It means house of bread. And there's interesting playing words here. So, Bethlehem is in what you you call the state of Judah, the territory of Judah. Judah means praise. Elimelech means God is king. And Naomi means pleasant. So, while they were in Bethlehem, Elimelech and his family were in the best place possible. While God was their king, Elimelech, they were feeding on Jesus, who is the bread of life, Bethlehem. This leads to a life of praise, Judah, and a life that is pleasant. Naomi, these things don't change no matter what our external circumstances are. But they chose to leave all this behind. 
So, they decide to go to Moab. Moab is 50 miles east from Bethlehem. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's out of the promised land. So, it's a picture of leaving the will of God. Now, the god of the Moabites was Chemosh, whose worship included human sacrifice. And they also worshipped the wife of Chemosh, Ashtar. And this is similar to the Baal Ashtaroth worship. And you'd probably understand, hopefully, that there's no synagogues or places to worship the true God in Moab. So they're going to a godless place. Now, it says, went to dwell. Now, that means that he only intended to live there for a short period of time. He left with the intention to return quickly. It was only meant to be a short-term measure. But the next verses tell us that his intention of a short visit turned into a 10-year nightmare. And Elimelech never returned to Israel. So the name Elimelech means God is king, but he didn't really live as if God was his king. Now, why Moab? Well, if it's true that this was a time of Gideon and he defeated the, the raiders that were destroying their crops, then Moab would not be affected by this, and so Moab would have plenty of food. And it says the fields of Moab, which means they went to an agricultural area where there was plenty of food. That's probably why they went there. So the problem is, what seemed to be a good choice in the short term turned out to be a bad decision in the long term. The easy way out wasn't so easy after all. The best place to be was in Bethlehem, as we talked about before. That's the place where God would meet them, in the will of God. And what we find out as we go along is that his decisions had terrible consequences for his family. So dads, watch out, because the little feet will follow. The little feet will follow. And we will have to give an account of how we raised our children when we get to heaven. And I think of Lot's daughters. You know, the influence of Sodom and Gomorrah and the nasty things they got up to. For example, Moab. Moab is the result of incest between Lot and one of his daughters. So living in Sodom caused them to have very questionable morals. And also, talking what we did last week, um, being a seat, we have to give an account of how we raised our children. All right, verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife is Naomi, and his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, the two sons, their names, Malon, it means like weekly, and it comes from the root word Kaela, which means to be sick, and Kilion means wasting or pining away. So the names seem to imply that the sons were not healthy sons, even from the time they were born. So that's just conjecture there, but that's what the names mean. And Ephratites is just another name for Bethlehem. So they came from Bethlehem. All right, verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives from the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Marlon and Kilion also died. So the woman, Naomi, survived her two sons and her husband. So poor Naomi, first her husband dies, 
and then her two sons die. Now, they're there for 10 years, but we don't know how long it was before Elimelech died, and we don't know how long the sons were married to the daughters-in-law. So somewhere in there they got married, and somewhere in there they all died. Now, some people say, aha, you do the wrong thing, God will judge you. But it doesn't say that in the text. It's reading into it. Um, It's difficult to discern why tragic things happen. So be careful when something bad happens to someone. It doesn't mean that God is judging them. It can mean that, but it doesn't always mean that. So all we can say for certain is that the change of scenery didn't make life any easier. And I like what David Guzik says about this. He says, We sometimes think we can move away from our problems, but we find we just bring them with us. No matter where you go, you bring yourself with you. So the same problems can continue in a different place. (laughs) Classy guy. We sometimes think we can move away from our problems, but find we just bring them with us. No matter where you go, you bring yourself with you. So the same problems can continue in a different place. And that's the same as people getting divorced and remarried and get divorced and remarried or you know, go through several partners as they do these days. You're taking the same problems with you and the same consequences, the same results. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Do the same thing, expecting a different result? <laughs> now, verse 4, Naomi's two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now, were they allowed to marry Orpah and Ruth? That's a different question to should they have married Orpah and Ruth. Now back then, they were allowed to. It wasn't a good idea, but they were allowed to because the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 specified only that the Israelites couldn't marry Canaanite women or they couldn't intermarry with the Canaanites. We didn't say anything about the Moabites. However, we can learn from Solomon's experience. It was his pagan wives who turned him, the wisest man who ever lived, away from serving and loving the true God to worshipping the same idols that we have talked about today, you know, Chemosh and Baal, etc. And this had disastrous consequences for the nation of Israel. It was the start of the end for the nation of Israel, this marrying pagan wives. So the application for us here, it's really obvious. In the New Testament, It says clearly that Christians must only marry Christians. Why? Well, there are several commands for Christians to marry only Christians in the New Testament, but probably the clearest one and the one that gives the best reason is 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through to 7, verse 1. It says, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Do not touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. 
So as parents, this is something we need to drill into our children. We need to tell them, if they're Christians, that they should never ever marry a non-Christian because many Christians do marry unbelievers today and it just results in misery. It's just a miserable existence for them. So, verse 4, they were there for about 10 years and again in verse 1, it says they were, you know, for a short time to dwell. It means for a short time, but the application for us here isn't it funny how a brief stray into sin often grows into a whole lot more? For example, a man or woman may not intend to sacrifice their family at the altar of success, but the first weekend spent working turned into years away from their family. Another example, a little compromise always leads to more compromise. One drink turns into drunkenness, one hit turns into an addiction, one look at pornography becomes a chain that binds us. We think, I can handle that. And just a little bit won't hurt. Most of us have probably learned the hard lesson that sin kills, steals, and destroys. And probably learned that many times. If we crack open the door for sin, it will come crashing through. In verse 5, both Marlon and Killian died as time went on. Over those 10 years, the two sons died. So now we have three childless widows. Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Now, what's it like in those days to be a widow and have no sons and no husband? You've got no income, you've got no security. You are the lowest, most disadvantaged class at that time. There was no one to support you and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. And now, Naomi had no family in Moab no one else to help her, and it was a desperate situation for her. So what does she do? She thinks, well, why am I here? What am I going to do now? She's depressed. She came to her senses, finally, and she went home. Just She makes the decision to go home. And we need to do the same thing when we find ourselves in this situation. Just like the prodigal son came to his senses and returned to the father, so Naomi seeks to go back home and seek God's mercy. And this is a beautiful picture of repentance. And what we find is that God takes a life that is broken and ugly and transforms it into something beautiful. Into a situation that was hopeless, God brings hope. It's all about God's grace. And I'm going to finish with John chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. The reason I'm reading this verse is because it speaks about Jesus as the one who brings us grace. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who redeems us, as we're going to find out with Boaz and Ruth later on. So John chapter 1, verse 16 to 17 from the Amplified Bible says, For out of his fullness, abundance, we have all received, all had a share, and we were all supplied with one grace after another, and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, and even favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. So if you're in the New King James or the New Living, it just says grace upon grace. But it expands it here. It's abundance. It's above and more. For while the law was given through Moses, grace, unearned, undeserved favor and spiritual blessing and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace comes through Jesus. It's a free gift. 
For out of his fullness, that's God's fullness and abundance, we have all received, all had a share, and we were all supplied with one grace after another, and spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, and even favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. That's an awesome picture of God's grace. Father, I just thank you that you have allowed us to start studying the book of Ruth, and Lord, we just look forward to understanding your grace more as we study this book. Teach us, Father, that everything we have is a gift from you. Everything we need is from you, and it's always received as a gift. And Lord, if we've sinned, if we've walked away from you, we can repent and we can receive and experience grace. So teach us, Lord, to trust you. Teach us, Lord, that no matter how far I've walked away from you, no matter how long we've been away from you, we can always come back. And you will do your miracles. You will do your miraculous work of restoring lives and restoring hope and making what is broken beautiful. So we just pray that you help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.